welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Speaking at a rally in Kentucky last week, President Trump responded to protests in opposition to his presidency and the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. You can either vote for Democrat mob rule or you can vote for a Republican Party that stands proudly for law and order, fairness, freedom and justice. And now the Trump administration is seeking to curb that so-called mob rule with new restrictions on protests and demonstrations in the nation's capital. Joining me is Howard Schweber, a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Howard, the proposed regulation could limit demonstrations on some of the Capitol's most iconic grounds for protests, including the National Mall, where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Tell us about some of the strictest out of the dozen or so limitations being proposed. Sure. So the proposed uh, regulations fall into three categories. One is limitations, direct limitations on access. And, and the strictest of these, I think, is the outright ban on pedestrian traffic uh, in front of the White House, uh, with, with a small exception of what's being called a, a, a pedestrian walkway. Um, that's really extraordinary. It's, it's depriving the American public of the, one of the most traditional sites for protest, for expression, for discussion, and just for gathering. And it's the most public imaginable place in the nation. Uh, and to limit people's access there as a way of avoiding being exposed to protest is, is really deeply dispiriting. Um, the other one that's really dramatic is the idea that permits can be revoked for any violation. And the reason that's so uh, tricky is that there's no, in, in, as the regulations are proposed, there's no requirement that the violation of the terms of a permit uh, occur by the people who got the permit. In other words, it would be possible to disrupt a protest merely by showing up using an unauthorized bullhorn, and that could be used as a pretext for the park police to shut down the entirety of, of the previously permitted protest. There are also possible requirements of fees for permits and reimbursements for costs. How much, when does this cross the line as far as infringing on First Amendment rights? That's an extremely good question, and it's a question with which uh, colleges and universities are wrestling, e- even as we speak. So there have been these famous instances, uh, instances excuse me, of students protesting against speakers, for example, at Berkeley. Uh, and these events create costs that run into millions of dollars. And for colleges with tight public budgets, that can be a real issue. In the case of the National Mall, uh, the sidewalk in front of the White House, I think this really gets to be a, a fundamental question. Yes, it costs money to allow the public to, to gather a petition for address and protest, as, as the Constitution puts it. Um, are we willing to subsidize these efforts with public funds, or will we plead poverty? And Is the richest nation on earth unable to afford the cost of maintaining a public space which the people can express themselves at the most iconic setting in the entire nation? As for the technical question of when asking for fees becomes an infringement on free speech, that's very difficult, and I don't think there's any clear answer. Certainly such a requirement would have to be imposed equally 
uh, and certainly it would have to be shown to be reasonable. That is, it couldn't be a pretext for charging outrageous fees just to prevent protests from occurring. But where that line would be drawn, that's something that would be fought over in litigation, I think, for quite a long time. Yes. Now, has, and of course, decades of court cases have set out many of the rules in this area, but has the Roberts Court given an expansive view to the First Amendment in cases of protests? No. And I, I think it's really worth noting um, two things. One, there's been a very expensive view of the First Amendment and free speech in other contexts. It's sometimes referred to as the weaponization of free speech. That is, free speech arguments have been used uh, um, to justify rulings against unions, uh, to justify rulings uh, to require permitting religious expression in all kinds of areas where in the past they would not have been used. But when it comes to public protest, uh, the Roberts Court, and for that matter, courts for some time, have been really quite restrictive. And it's worth pointing out that both Democrats and Republicans, for example, at their national conventions, going back 20 years now, have been relying on these very restrictive free speech zones, which are sometimes called free speech cages, where protesters are required to be in an area surrounded by a chain-link fence away from the arena. In other words, there's been a general trend toward federal authorities clamping down on free speech and protest. And that has just fed, the, I think, the tendency of the Trump administration to want to move in a more authoritarian direction. The ACLU has previously sued the government over attempts to limit protests near the White House. How has it fared? Uh, there have been mixed results. Um, what has never happened is there has never been, and, and perhaps we, were, we are coming up on this, there's never been a court ruling that simply forthrightly declared um, that a public forum such as the National Mall must make itself available for protests. The idea of a public forum is an area where people traditionally express themselves, like a town square or, or a park. Um, one would argue that the National Mall is uniquely the most iconic public forum in the country and therefore should be specially made available. But even the general rules uh, uh, say that while time, place, and manner restrictions are permissible, there have to be adequate avenues for expression of protest. But the ACLU has never succeeded in getting the Roberts Court uh, to really make a clear declaration that protest has to be allowed in ways that are visible and effective uh, um, and, and that fit the general public understanding of what that guarantee would require. So the Park Service says that for now it's just looking for the public's views on the matters, and that comment period is over today. What happens next? Well, um, now that the comments have been received, the Park Service uh, will consider them, um, depending how suspicious one is of the Park, Service mo Park Service's motives, you can wonder how that consideration will take place. Once the consideration period has been expired, uh, has expired, excuse me, those regulations uh, will be allowed to go into effect. And when, when they have taken effect and someone has tried to hold a protest and been prevented or had a permit revoked, they can then go to court. Uh, that court challenge will go through the various stages of federal litigation. This can take months or even years. And in that intervening period, these regulations will remain in place and protests will be prevented. So the ACLU or another organization can't sue before the protest? They have to wait for the protest to be denied? Well, it is possible to uh, seek an injunction 
uh, uh, preventing the implementation of the regulations. But the bar for securing such an injunction is very, very high. So, for example, members, I mean, the public has recently, we, we've all paid a lot of attention to orders uh, preventing the Trump administration from implementing certain rules about immigration and excluding people from majority Muslim countries. That's an example where a federal judge was willing to step in and prevent the government from doing something that it wants to do. In this case, I suspect that would be more difficult, uh, unless there could be a showing of an immediate issue. Now, that issue might turn on the proximity of, an, uh, of midterm elections, uh, or it might be raised by a group seeking uh, a permit to, for a protest and not getting one. But, as I say, it is difficult to persuade a federal court to issue an injunction uh, against an administrative regulation, uh, barring that the ACLU or whomever is trying to bring this case would have to go through the, the court system. Thanks so much, Howard. That's Howard Schweber. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School. We're live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Today, Saudi Arabia is promising to retaliate against any and all sanctions brought against the country in the continuing fallout from journalist Jamal Khashoggi's disappearance. Speaking on ABC's This Week, National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow would not say what the president meant when he threatened Saudi Arabia with severe punishment. Believe what the president says when he says we will take very tough action if the uh, allegations of Saudi interference prove to be the case. This morning on his way to Florida, Trump said he's immediately sending Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Saudi Arabia to meet with the Saudi king. Pompeo is on his way there. And Trump also suggested that, quote, rogue killers might be behind the disappearance. Joining me is Adam Smith, a partner at Gibson Dunn. Adam, this situation continues to escalate. There is growing pressure from Congress. Is the Trump administration taking the right steps here, or should sanctions be imposed immediately? Well, I think immediately might be saying a bit too much. Uh, First of all, thanks so much for having me. I I think we need to find out exactly what happened, uh, which is what Congress has demanded of the president thus far by sending a letter to him uh, last week. Uh, An investigation, of course, should be done on an unfettered basis. And depending on what happens and what the conclusion is, I think action should then be taken. Absolutely. So now let's talk about the various steps that are available, various things that the White House could do to react in Congress. And the White House hasn't specified any, the nature of any of the steps it may take. But they range from punishments under, uh, they range from downgrading diplomatic relations or sanctioning Saudi officials to, you know, withdrawing from an investment conference in Riyadh. So, so tell us about the different levels. There is a significant range, as you've said, and the president's authority to execute on the international stage is really unlimited, even by Congress. And so you're right, everything from uh, downgrading diplomatic relations, which seems unlikely, um, which would be rather significant, potentially sanctioning very important uh, actors and even sort of components of the Saudi economy, again, seems rather unlikely, all the way down to sort of even more sort of minimal sort of uh, statements of disapproval rather than actually any sort of activity, you know, diplomatic statements, uh, senses of Congress, these sorts of activities, which, of course, Congress would do rather than the president, and really everything in between. Uh, the U.S., of course, sells the Saudis a lot of arms. There's been a lot of talk recently about that we should stop doing that for various reasons. So that would be a significant issue as well. So you mentioned that senators in both parties invoked the Magnitsky Act in a letter to President Trump. 
what makes you think that sanctions will not be imposed with what you said with the Congress putting pressure on Trump in a bipartisan way? Well, at the end of the day, it still is the president's call. So what the Magnitsky Act says is that if a letter like the one that was submitted uh, last uh, Wednesday is received, the president then has 120 days to do an investigation and to report back to Congress about whether or not one or more of the individuals on this letter is involved in extrajudicial killings, torture, or other sort of violations of human rights, and then make a determination as to whether or not that person or persons will be sanctioned. But at the end of the day, it's a presidential call. Uh, 120 days, unfortunately, is a long time from now, and so who knows what the world will look like then, of course, post-midterms and all the rest. So there is pressure that Congress can put on the president, but that pressure is very much limited by the fact that at the end of the day, this is still a presidential call that the Congress has only sort of indirect control over. Congress has indirect control, but there seems this seems to be a situation that's quickly ratcheting up and the pressure internationally, the pressure from news organizations. It seems to be a situation that won't hold for 120 days. Will it or do you think it will hold for that long? Well, we don't know. I mean, I think you're right. If, if it continues at the pace of, uh, that it has been the past couple of days, I think you're right. I think it's some, something we'll need to give. And whether that is sanctions or some other sort of re- response, I, I don't know. Uh, but if more information is discovered, if there's clear evidence of activity on behalf of the Saudis with respect to what happened in Istanbul, then I think you're right. I don't think it will hold. And I think that for political reasons, if not because it's the right thing to do, but certainly for political reasons, action will have to be taken. What that is, I, I think, though, will depend on what is discovered. Uh, if you know, I'm not sure these rogue killer ideas that Mr. Trump is talking about, whether that will be the, the reality or whether it will go all the way up, as some people have said, with respect to who in the Saudi government is involved. And I think that will depend. Uh, what the response will be will depend on what's found, obviously. And if the higher up uh, the finding, I think the more the tidal wave will, will sort of be bipartisan, be international, and I then, then think Trump will be forced to act in some respect. Will you explain how the Congress was able to enact sanctions against Russia despite President Trump's reluctance? Yeah, I mean, so the president's authority to impose sanctions is an executive authority unencumbered by Congress unless Congress passes a law to basically compel uh, compel the president. And that's what happened last August. The president did not seem inclined to impose sanctions on Russia for any of the number of activities they're doing in Syria, election interference, etc. And so Congress back in August passed a new law, the uh, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CATSA, uh, which was done on a bipartisan basis, both houses of Congress done passed to a level that is beyond the veto-proof majority needed, because, of course, the president could have just vetoed it unless it's veto-proof. And so it, it was enough anger, I think, on a bipartisan basis, enough concern in both houses of Congress to result in this law that pushes the president. Again, even Katza, even though that is a, a definite pushing the president to impose sanctions, even that, I think you would have seen very limited sanctions actually imposed since August under that law, and Congress is quite upset with that, because at the end of the day, it still is an executive action that the executive needs to execute on law. And the same thing would be true here. If the president doesn't want to impose sanctions on Saudi Arabia, Congress could pass a law requiring the president to do so. But at the end of the day, the president could potentially slow roll that or decide not to impose sanctions for any of a number of reasons. Uh, and so 
the Congress has authority, uh, but the, the, that authority is limited by the fact that at the end of the day, the executive is the one that needs to execute that law. It has, a, has sort of inherent discretion to decide how to do that, when to do that, and against whom to do that. All right. Thanks so much, Adam. That's Adam Smith. He is a partner at Gibson Dunn. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.